Welcome back to the Hard Landings Podcast, everybody, with uh, your Aviation Stories of the Month episode. I'm Miranda. I'm Nick. And I'm Christy. And this month was your first Aviation Stories. Yeah. Thank you, David. (laughs) Mostly. We we actually have a couple from people that you've heard on the podcast before. Yeah, that's true. We do. Or will hear on the podcast. But we also have a lot of David. Yes. (laughs) We have mostly David and then a couple of other stories. And that's okay. And this time, David does not know how to write short stories. So. That's okay. Buckle up. He had fun with us. Fasten your seatbelts. Hold on. Gonna be a wild ride. I was hoping for other script from flight attendants. I don't have anything. <laughs> nope. I'm, I'm blanking. Sorry. That's okay. <laughs> Lift up on the metal tab to release the buckle. There you go. <laughs> I don't know. Only Anyways. if you have to get out of your seat. Okay. Okay. So, we start with one from David, and he wrote his location is originally Abilene, Texas. This story is is entitled, First Naval Aviation Experience Up Close. In February of 1979, several of us seniors in NJROTC got the opportunity to go aboard an actual ship for a few days. We left Powder Springs, Georgia, and drove to Naval Base Charleston, South Carolina. Charleston has since been closed and is used as a TV and movie set. Not too long ago, my wife and I were watching Army Wives, and I thought I recognized some of the buildings. It was Charleston. But in 79, there were aircraft carriers, destroyers, submarines, and USS Blakely, FF-1072, a Knox-class fast frigate. A FF, fast frigate I assume, was once designated DE, or Destroyer Escort. In combat, the FFs were to be anti-submarine warfare assets first and anti-aircraft second. In a task force, the frigates would be on the outer edges protecting the larger combatants by looking for submarines and hostile aircraft. Forward, there was a 5-inch rapid-fire cannon. First in front of the bridge was an ASROC launcher, an anti-submarine rocket launcher that looked like a big box mounted on a stand. Amidships, there were torpedo tubes, then a rolling hangar for the LAMPS, or Light Airborne Multipurpose System, helicopter, and near the stern was the BPDMS, or Beep Demis? Beepademis? 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 I don't know. The Basic Point Missile Defense System. Another large box that had RIM-7 Sea Sparrow missiles. Man, he knows a lot about this stuff. Yep. Actually, a ship used AIM-7 Sparrow radar-guided missile used in Vietnam by the F-4 Phantom. Oh, interesting. In that horrid Pearl Harbor movie, during the attack on Pearl Harbor, there are retired Knox frigates seen with the BPDMS launchers and helicopter decks being unmistakable and really off-putting in a movie about the year 1941. Tora, Tora, Tora is much better. We were just talking about how aviation, if you if you know enough about aviation and then you go to the movies and you see something, you're like, wow, this sucks. <laughs> yeah, yeah. This like is not realistic whatsoever. Yeah, really, that is true. Fair warning for those of you who are going to watch the new Wonder Woman. Miranda had qualms. There's With just, the aviation portion. Yeah, there's just a small part where in the middle of the movie where you're like, that's not realistic at all. <laughs> yeah. We pulled out of Charleston and headed south in the Atlantic Ocean, just out of sight of mainland USA. While passing North Florida, we were beginning to hit heavy water 
in the form of an Atlantic storm. The Blakely began to really rock and roll, pitching and rolling. Some of our guys got seasick at this point. I, however, loved it. Over the 1MC, the main communication announcement system for the ship, came, quote, Now flight quarters, flight quarters, all hands man flight quarter, no smoking aft of frame, I don't remember, now flight quarters, end quote. I looked at the ops officer, more or less third in the chain of command, who was also the air traffic control, OIC, officer in charge of flight ops. He was headed aft to the rollaway hangar, which had a small box mounted on the starboard side facing aft. The box was the air traffic control center. I pretty much said, I'm going with you, and he just shrugged and said, sure. Sure, whatever. Sure, whatever. I can't stop you. We climbed the ladder, Navy speak for stairs, and entered the box. He put on a headset and established comms with the inbound HS-2 Sea Sprite helicopter detachment from NAS Jacksonville. The ship was really pitching up and down and rolling left and right as the helo, in lieu of chopper, flew out of the stormy rain clouds and hovered at an angle to the flight deck just off the starboard side. The landing gear popped out and the helo began to mimic the ship's movements, pitching and rolling. Slowly it advanced and dropped in height over the ocean until it was over the deck, still moving with the ship. Then, bam, it was on the deck, and the ship's company appeared out of nowhere, throwing chucks in front and back of the landing gear and attaching chain tie-downs to the helo to secure it to the deck. The four-blade rotor wound down and stopped. Then it was placed in its stowage position, folded together, aligned with the fuselage, stopping just short of the vertical stabilizer and tail rotor. All that happened in less than two minutes. Then the hangar began rolling aft to cover the helo. When out of the bad weather, the flight ops began with the helo looking for a submarine in coordination with the ship. We begged to be allowed to ride in the sea sprite, but no! Count yourself lucky just to be able to ride on the ship. Bastards. <laughs> tell, tell me what you really think. Yeah, tell me, oh. what you, tell me how you really feel about that. On the third day, we were heading back to Charleston, the Lamps Debt launched and headed home to Nasjax. It was interesting. While aboard, they were unto themselves, staying in the hangar, and even had a film projector they took with them and watched movies projected on the back of the hangar's rolling door. They mixed with the ship's company as little as possible. After the helo had left, SH-3 Sea Kings appeared, hovered off the port side, and lowered a hoist. A ship's crewman would secure a fuel hose, and the helo would winch it up. Plug it into the fuel receptacle inside the helo and gas up. Then the hose was lowered. Removed from the hoist, the helo would fly away and another Sea King would get some gas. I had to stay away from the actual working area, but close enough that I could wave at the crew and they would wave back. The Sea Kings were too big and heavy for the helo deck to handle. All this happened while underway inbound to Charleston. That was a cool trip and the only cruise I've ever taken. Good for you. It's an interesting experience. Yes. It's way more interesting than probably our cruises, but pretty cool. Probably not as luxurious, but... Yeah. The Blakely had previously been in the Mediterranean for something like four months, and our little three-day jaunt was to break in and test some new ASW equipment and repaired gear before her next big multi-month deployment. Eventually, all the Noxies, Garcias, and other FFs would be retired and replaced by FFGs, guided missile frigates. The last Oliver Hazard Perry class was scrapped a few years ago, and the newest FFG, the Constellation class, is on order. 
Of course, we all know the Starship Enterprise was a Constellation-class heavy cruiser. <laughs> True. In naval tradition, the first ship of a class of ships becomes the name of that class. The USS Knox was the first of the class of fast frigate, so all subsequent ships like the Blakely are Knox-class frigates. The newest FFG will be the USS Constellation, so that will be the class name for the subsequent FFGs until upgrades and systems result in the need for a new class. When the FFs were retired, so were the Sea Sprites. Now the SHMH-60 Seahawk operate off the FFGs, DDGs, and CGs, guided missile destroyers, and cruisers, respectively. That cruise aboard Blakely was a great adventure for a 17-year-old kid. Good for you. Nice. Yeah. I mean, we've been on... Actual cruises. Well, that, but we, we went on the USS Midway in California. Yep. Yeah. I mean, it's a it's a museum now. Yes. But and I've been on the Intrepid in New York, and I think I've been on the one in Corpus Christi, but I was too young to remember. I cannot imagine staying in there, because the living quarters are so tiny. Yeah. And being it's inside the that USS ship. Lexington. The Lexington. Lexington, that's right, yeah. And... It's just one of those things where I would get very claustrophobic. But what an fast. experience. Well, and we've been on some other ones, too, at some of the other museums around around the country. But, yeah, it's what an experience anyways. I mean, pretty cool. Got to yeah. be out there on it, see the operation, see the helicopters and stuff. It's pretty cool. So David's next story is the one I've been excited for. He's from Earth, in case you guys didn't know. I saw that, and I kind of chuckled a little bit. <laughs> <laughs> and this one is entitled first jump finally (laughs) finally so everyone i was close to left off to college or the military i'd get the occasional visit and letter this was when you had to write a letter or make a phone call to communicate (laughs) thanks wow nice uh, little dig there david (laughs) yeah but those tapered off i did have a girlfriend a fiance until she dumped me for her coworker at the police station where her cop brother got a job as the dispatcher wow oof that's rough sorry by 1981, it was just me, going back and forth to UPS to load trucks. All my pals gone, and my life was left with a gigantic hole in it. I was bored, lonely to the point one night I climbed onto the roof of a local mall and watched people through the skylights. I'd go to the Sunday matinees, alone, then read the paper, and that's where I saw the ad, Learn to Skydive. Okay, oh listen, boy. I go to the movies by myself all the time. Don't feel bad. I love it. Yeah. Of course I had to try it. The Itawa Skydiving Center was at the Cartersville Airport in Cartersville, Georgia, just an hour or so up the road. I wanted to learn to fly, but financially there was no way. We feel that. Yep, get that completely. However, with jumping, I'd get half an airplane ride at least and a parachute jump. What could go wrong? This way, I'd have something to talk to my airborne paratrooper friends about, something in common again in their infrequent letters and visits home, and something to fill the void left from where my ex-future ex-wife left me. Oof. Plus, I was still living at home and I needed to get away. I get that. (laughs) (laughs) So off I went that first weekend of August 1981. It was sunny, hot, humid, and beautiful. Your definition of beautiful weather is arguable. Uh, We don't like humid, but we're native. Or hot. Yeah. Well, you don't like hot. No. But at least here it's not humid. Humidity is horrible. (laughs) Anyway. The only bummer was I had to drive past the house my ex-girlfriend shared with that guy and see her car in the driveway. Bruh. Damn. The drop zone was a dilapidated trailer on one side of the airport. 
there was a giant pit full of pea gravel to land in, and in the middle of that was a smallish windsock. There was also this big metal arrow painted white and red mounted on a stand so it could rotate 360 degrees and be used to show student jumpers which direction to steer. There would be a day's worth of instruction culminating in a static line jump from 1,500 feet with a dummy ripcord pole. Two good DRCPs, dummy ripcord pole, meant you could leap off and pull your own on the third jump. There were three of us students, myself and two other guys, one being from England and wanting to write about the experience. Our instructor was Cindy, an RN, or registered nurse, who was co-owner of the business with her police officer husband. She had several hundred jumps and was very patient with us, explaining in detail what to do and why we were doing it. The rest of the drop zone people reminded me of a motorcycle gang without the undertone of violence. They looked kind of rough, mostly guys with a few really loyal girlfriends who loyally followed them around. I didn't know it at the time, but one was a computer programmer, another was a corporate commercial pilot, a couple of electricians, and an engineer or two. They were cordial, but mostly ignored us. Beer cans and bottles were everywhere, and even on a couch in the trailer, there was an unbelievable mound of empty beer cans. Then the cans fell to the floor, and this badly hungover guy named Jerry stumbled outside <laughs> and threw up. Great! <laughs> so you're telling me that Jerry was underneath all he the beer cans. He was underneath the large mound of cans. He was the large <laughs> mound of was. cans. I was beginning to have second thoughts. Yet I noticed nobody was drinking anything but Mountain Dew and Coke while the drop zone was active. I watched those rough-looking guys put on their jumpsuits and parachutes and saw their faces as their eyes came to life. They'd dirt dive, practice their formations on the ground, then excitedly, like little kids at Six Flags, get in the airplane, a Cessna 182, and off they'd go. Nearly an hour later, at 8,000 feet, we'd stop practicing, arch, look, reach, pull, long enough to watch them exit and build a four-way round and transition to other formations for the 30-ish seconds of freefall they had. Then they'd streak across the sky in different directions in what's called a track, like Superman, to get separation, then open the square parachutes they got to jump. They'd do spiral stalls just like a glider, some of them yelling with utter joy and make these easy tiptoe landings with gigantic grins on their faces. Hell yeah, I had to try this. As first jump students, we'd jump surplus military round canopies modified with what was called a 7TU to make them somewhat steerable. No free fall, no formations, but you gotta start somewhere. We practice jumping backwards off of the strut of the Cessna, do our arch look reach pull, check canopy, oh no, a malfunction, pull the reserve ripcord, grab the reserve parachute, and throw it into the wind as it had no spring-loaded pilot chute like the main canopy had. We also perfected the PLF, the parachute landing fall, to keep breaking of bones to a minimum. Finally, after a day of rolling around in the dirt, it was time to jump. Cindy had to leave for work, so some scruffy-looking soybean farmer with no teeth would be our jump master. Wayne okay. <laughs> Makes it seem like it's a bad thing. <laughs> Wayne was down to earth and direct to the point, saying, I'll tell you to get on the strut, yell, ready, set, go, and when I say go, I'm going to reach out and slap you at <laughs> <laughs> You jump backwards off and arch, look, reach, pull like you've been taught. If you don't go, I'm going to kick your off within my foot <laughs> i mean that you're the whole point of doing it is to skydive so either you jump on your own or someone makes you jump yep there seemed to be no room for argument we were all helped into the real thing a backpack parachute and a belly mount reserve over our rented coveralls we also wore combat boots and football helmets minus the face mask two of the experienced guys walked up and stood behind the english guy who had not been real successful in making a good impression one began to point to various places on the parachute to the other, saying, 
they did good getting the blood off this rig and brain matter too. Then they just <laughs> walked away saying something about the death rig. The rest of us Great. The rest of us scrutinized his rig to try and see old blood spatter, one again wondering, why am I here? <laughs> they are just trying to scare you. Yeah. yeah, more than likely. The four of us got into the Cessna 182, which had no seats except for the pilot and no door. A dude dressed in only shorts, sunglasses, and tennis shoes hopped in, put the headset over his ears, and waited for Wayne to place us. English guy in first, out last, then me, then a guy named Jeff who sat on the floor next to Howard, the mostly naked pilot. Jeff, who would later cause a stampede. (laughs) (laughs) Great. We know that guy. Yep. And land in the only pond for 30 miles. Yep. (laughs) Yep. 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 Faced the back of the plane with his back against a piece of wood under the instrument panel. Then I was told to sit in Jeff's lap. Wayne sat behind Howard with the English dude in his lap, all of us facing the rear of the plane. Howard yelled, clear prop, and the engine started and we rolled towards the runway, hesitated as Howard checked the engine out, then power as the Cessna quickly came to flying speed and rotated off into the humid sky. The cool air felt so good and I couldn't believe I was about to do this. Jump, run. Wayne knelt in the doorway and stared straight down. Howard pretty much put the plane on the correct heading as Wayne looked up for a second and yelled, five left. The airplane made a sudden, sharp, flat turn five degrees to the left, and Wayne nodded and looked at Jeff and pointed to the strut. Jeff sat up, and Wayne took the static line on Jeff's rig and anchored it to a ring on the floor of the Cessna. And Jeff timidly crawled out into the wind, hands on the strut, left foot on the step over the wheel, right foot dangling in the breeze. Below us was deep green and tan, the arrow, the trailer, the pee pit, and a crowd looking up at us. Wayne yelled, ready, set, and with a sharp slap on Jeff's ass, Go. <laughs> Jeff jumped off the strut, arching like a big X, and looked up at us with wide, terrified eyes, not doing the DRCP. The static line pulled the parachute out, and it popped open as we circled back around for my turn to jump. Wayne put his face close to mine and yelled, Kneel in the door. I felt him take my static line and attach it to the ring. Then, as Howard came on heading, Wayne began to spot my jump. I turned and looked at Howard, who gave me a big smile and a thumbs up. Then Wayne was yelling, on the strut. I also timidly crawled into the slipstream, death grips on the strut, and I saw more than heard, ready, set, slap, go, (laughs) from Wayne's toothless mouth. I jumped off and brought my arms in, grabbed the dummy ripcord, and by the time my arms were back out, there was an orange, white, and green parachute over my head. The roar of the airplane and the wind at 100 miles an hour was replaced by quiet and the most spectacular view. I looked between my feet and saw the arrow indicating that I needed to turn around. I grabbed the wooden steering toggles and pulled hard on the left, the parachute slowly turning. The arrow had me alternating, running with the wind, and then turn into it to slow down until all too soon the pee pit was just below me. I heard someone yell, feet and knees together, to make sure I was ready for my PLF. I drifted past the pee pit and hit sun-baked dirt and PLF'd, then bounced back up giddy with laughter. The experienced jumpers were now all smiles, pats on the back, and questions about how I liked it as they helped me out of the heavy, cumbersome gear. I loved it, wanted, needed more of it. I felt the giant hole from being left behind begin to close at last. The English guy, well, as he descended, he was a bit slow on the whole concept of steering with the arrow. He came down just over the barbed wire fence into a pasture and dead-centered a cow. <laughs> oh, no. Yes, a large moo cow. <laughs> oh, God. Moo, what moo kind cow. of other cow is it? <laughs> it's a moo cow. It's a moo cow. He and the cow screamed in unison as the bee shot a, some enormous giant gelatinous goo out of the rear end and ran <laughs> 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 
Ew. Thanks for that. His parachute <laughs> collapsing. English guy fell backward off the cow and into the really warm, gigantic goo. Ew. Oh. Standing next to me was one of the guys who commented on the English guy's rig earlier. He looked at me and see- said, see, death rig. <laughs> Great. Just, you know, you, you land in a bunch of cow poop. I was back the next weekend, as was Jeff. We became part of a four-way team, which we decided to call the Multiple Injuries, a play on the accidents report in Parachutist Magazine and our own health issues. Great. I would make 500-plus jumps over the next 10 years out of the 182, C-47s, balloons, UH-1, turbo porters, and helio couriers that had patched bullet holes from Vietnam, sky vans, and beach-18s. The English guy we never saw again. 30-some-odd years later, I still communicate with several of my skydiving brothers, and we still feel the pain from losing brothers and sisters to crashes. Not a one directly from a malfunctioning parachute. I would never be that close to anybody ever again, not even my wife in a weird sort of way. Maybe it's hard to describe, but easy to understand? Jumping was the most fulfilling thing I've ever done. I would do it again in a heartbeat. It it kind of sounds like what marching band was to us yes Mm -hmm. so we get it we understand what you're talking about being close to people that you probably will never be that kind of close to ever again we understand we get it yeah yeah so we now have a story from our famous guest emily so famous much fame all fame fame. (laughs) all fame she's from colorado she is from indian hills specifically which actually some of you might know. There's famous memes that float around of a sign outside of something oh, in Indian yeah, Hills. That's right. And she's always like, yep, that's where I'm from. I'm from the meme sign place. The meme yeah. sign place. Yeah, yeah. So she's from the meme sign, meme sign place. So this story d- doesn't have a topic either or a title, but it. I will tell you, spoiler alert, this happened with us. So It features yours truly. Hey! <laughs> so... It goes, I had a coworker for a brief period of time who did day trips with a group of friends because they were pros <laughs> at cheap travel. Hello. Hi, that's us. That's the three of us. <laughs> I- I'm the coworker. Yeah. For the record. When she invited me to go on a trip to St. Louis with them for less than $100 round trip, my untraveled self signed right up. Little did I know exactly what I was signing up for. First off, the departure from DIA was at a ridiculous hour in the morning, which was Sorry. not bad for lines or traffic. It actually wasn't the earliest one we've done, oh, or God. the craziest yeah. by far, but it was still early. But half awake is not the time to navigate relatively new places alone. <laughs> That's fair. Luckily, I met up with them quickly. Second, when I did meet up with them, this extremely nerdy group of plain people <laughs> had the worst <laughs> jokes, which oddly enough was a pro because I can appreciate a dope joke. Oh, uh, God. God damn it, Emily. <laughs> she did that on purpose. She always says dope to us. Because it makes me not mad, but irritated. Yeah, that's a little weird. I can understand why she'd do that, though. It's, it's funny. funny. Needless to say, moving sidewalks made us hairy wizards. Instead of you're a wizard, Harry, you're a hairy wizard. Yes, you're a hairy wizard. That, that was the joke that came from that day. Yeah. Third and final, once we got to St. Louis, all kinds of shenanigans occurred. Most impressive of all, specifically in light of COVID-19, was the licking of the arch. Yeah. Oh, I forgot about that. 
I have a picture of that somewhere. I forgot about that. Bren- for- Brendan was with us. We were we were at the base of the arch in St. Louis. This was all before COVID nineteen. Yes. Was, this was now what? Almost two years ago. Bro, I don't even know. Probably. I don't know. It's- Anyways, so Brendan's like, I'm a lick it. And I was like, <laughs> What? He's like, I'm a lick it. I said, Well, I gotta get a picture then. So I have a picture of him. We walked over to the base of the arch and he licked the arch. In hindsight, a terrible idea. Yeah. <laughs> now, this was not just a quick lick, but a posed lick. Yeah, a he lick sat that there for a long while. enough to be recorded via photography to last for generations. <laughs> yeah. A lick oh, that God. will be shared with grandchildren. If it had been cold, we would have had a Christmas story fiasco on our hands kind of a lick. While, a tri- yeah. <laughs> While the trip wasn't my first ever, it was the first I was old enough to remember in detail, and the first of what I hope to be many with those wackos. I hope Aww, so, too. We, we had some planned, and then literally COVID happened, and we had to cancel Everything multiple of those. Everything got canceled, yeah. Yes, multiple of those. That was fun, though. That was really funny. Yeah. I forgot that he licked the arch. Yeah, he licked the arch. We were like, don't do it. It's nasty. And he goes, but I have to do it. (laughs) Oh, God. I was just looking to see if I have that picture somewhere on here. But I I think I do. I just, I don't know. I'd have to go search. If you find it, you should send it to me so I can put it on the post. I'll send it to you. Okay. So I have another David story. And in this case, I get to read a rather unfortunately titled one. Titled, My First Malfunctioning Parachute. Uh (laughs) Uh-oh. Yeah. SpaghettiOs. Well, he's alive, so... He's alive! (laughs) I mean, he didn't die, so... Yeah. But did you die, though? But did you die? Good thing there's backups for these. My first malfunction came on my 41st jump, which was my second square parachute jump. Back when I learned to jump in the early 80s, there was no accelerated freefall, AFF, or thank the flight spaghetti monster a tandem jump. <laughs> That's quite the way of putting that. That's yeah. <laughs> the spaghetti monster. Yeah. I would not have taken the sport up if I had to make a tandem first. Won't do it. Anyway, the first two to three had to be static line jumps with a DRCP or dummy ripcord pole, followed by hop and pops. Hop off the strut and pop the parachute yourself. Then five-second delays, 10-second, etc., all under the round canopies. Then, for whatever reason, on jump number 40, we could make a jump under a square. Some of us had gone to Zephyr Hills, Florida, or Z-Hills, to the Thanksgiving boogie. They had, at the time, I don't know about nowadays, a DC-3 called 40 Tango. Skydivers from around the world were there to jump in 10-way, 15-way, etc., to make large megablot formations, my first square jump was in a 10-way, where I was base pin, that is the two-person formation to form the base of the larger formation of 10 people. The base has to be steady, fall straight down, that is, no spinning, no po- potato chipping, no sliding, or anything other than be a stable platform for the others to aim at and dock on. It was successful and just cool as hell. Sounds interesting, actually. Kind of cool. Mm-hmm. I like potato chipping. (laughs) I didn't know you could verb a potato chip. (laughs) But good job. Second square jump was a solo following a 15-way from 12,500 feet. I would be jumping a demo rig 
that the rep had packed and given to me to use. Uh-oh. Yeah. What's the saying? Always pack your own shoot? Yeah. He had to leave, so after I jumped it, I was to leave it with some other guy the rep knew. We all get in 40 Tango. And at altitude, the various groups go out on different passes. And as the last one out, I follow the 15-way five seconds after they left. I was going to open high at five grand to get to fly the canopy and play with it. So from 12,500 to 5,000, I did front and back flips, 360s, corkscrews, and at five grand, I waved off and pulled the pilot chute out of its pocket and let it go. I felt a tug. I twisted to my right and saw my brittle cord bag, brittle cord pilot chute. The parachute is in the bag. OMFG. <laughs> a bag lock. When I was briefed on the possible malfunctions that a square chute could have, bag lock was the last one I was told about my, almost as an afterthought. Oh, there's this one called a bag lock. You'll probably never have one if you pack correctly, but it's where the brittle cord gets tied like a slipknot over the bag and the parachute can't deploy out of it. You have a 50-50 chance with this. You can cut away, but there might not be enough drag to separate the bag and pilot chute from the risers. So when you pull the reserve, it might get tangled with the brittle and bag and game over. Then again, the bag might separate or the reserve might clear it if it doesn't. Great. Awesome. So Nothing you have like... a 50-50 shot of dying. Yes. That's nice. Time for a little extra gallon or two of adrenaline. <laughs> Time dilation is a weird thing. I knew the needle on my altimeter was really unwinding fast. I knew I had seconds to deal with this. I saw the Atlanta Journal newspaper and the headline said, Skydiver dies in Florida. Oh my gosh, that gave me chills. Don't yeah. do that. Don't do that. <laughs> I once read that when things turn weird, the weird turn pro. I rolled over onto my back and wound the brittle cord around my right arm until the bag and pilot chute were in my grip, then back onto my belly and pulled the reserve. Bam! Above my head was this beautiful yellow and white canopy against the bright blue sky. I was craving banana cream pie for some reason all of a sudden. I let go of the brittle and bag and... I'm pretty sure it's bridal. It might be bridal. Yeah. All this time I've been saying the wrong thing. Sorry. It's okay. Bridal and bag and let them dangle harmlessly below me. I grabbed the steering toggles on the reserve risers and turned to face into the wind and landed in a field just off the drop zone. Phew. <laughs> You're telling me. Whew. Yeah. Spaced evenly over the fence were some wooden steps for people who missed the drop zone for whatever reason so they could easily get over the fence. I now knew that I could handle damn near anything weird that could happen under a malfunction. This would come in handy three more times over the next ten or so years. Something about malfunctions is applicable to life in general. None of us ever knows what we will do in any situation until we are in that situation, whether it be a malfunctioning parachute, a confrontation with another person, or a dead stick airplane. We can train, practice, anticipate, but until it happens, we never really know. Monday morning, quarterbacks, be they other skydivers, pilots, judges, or cops, can go to hell with their woulda, shoulda, coulda. Until they look and see the stark reality of a bag lock, a dead engine, or a six foot two, 250-pound brute swinging his fist at your head, they can just STF. Shut the F up. Yep. Until they go through it and see if they have what it takes to live through the event. Wow. Dang. You almost died, friendo. Good job. 
And uh, <laughs> nice like four more, three to four more times, apparently. Yeah. Scary stuff. Scary. Spooky, scary stuff. Spooky, okay. scary. This next one's also from David. Shocker. <laughs> wow. And unfortunately, it is called When Friends Perish. Mm. Which we already, you, he's told us stories about his friends passing away in, in crashes and stuff, so. It is too bad. Sad. Not too long after the Cessna caravan crash and the loss of Or Orbiter Challenger, there was another incident that hit me and many others personally. This time, there were only two fatalities, but they were two good guys, Steve and Howard. It can't be proven, but Steve was most likely flying the airplane, a vintage North American T-28 Trojan, a single-round-engine tandem seat trainer for the Navy and Air Force back in the 50s. Although the accident-slash-incident reports have someone else as the owner, we understood it was Steve's airplane. Steve was a DC-8 captain and a Vietnam vet who flew F-105 Thunder Chief, a.k.a. the Thud, and the A-7D Slough, or short little guy, ugly effort. He also owned a former C-53 Skytrooper that dropped airborne over D-Day that we called Sugar Alpha. Wow, this guy had some serious airplane know-how. Yeah, yeah uh, and experience. Steve parlayed the ever-present high-threat environment of war into an airline environment that was awfully good back in the 70s until deregulation sort of threw it into turmoil. I got along okay with Steve, who once lost his maskless football helmet in a, on a jump. The look on his face. I got along better with the other guy lost that day, Howard. Howard was a guy who earned his seat in a commercial cockpit the hard way, building hours flying us to 8,000 over and over, risking life and limb in old, underpowered Beach 18s, flying freight and any other job he could get to pay for ratings, and those many needed hours holding a yoke and slowly going tough. Howard flew the first time I jumped. Just a quiet, nearly naked pro flyer who knew how to get along with an airplane. And us, something many pilots found hard to do. Howard had been a skydiver, but switched to flying like a lot of us wish we could have done. So he was okay with our eccentricities? Eccentricities. Like after the last load of the day, the jump pilot for whatever the airplane was, would buzz the drop zone to pay respects. It was especially cool for the various DC-3, C-47, C-53 types to do a buzz job. To return the salute, all the skydivers would line up and moon <laughs> the <laughs> aforementioned pilots as they flew low overhead. Respect. <laughs> buzz me, I moon you! <laughs> Howard and I bonded over the book The Right Stuff by Tom Wolfe. Oh, yeah. We discussed how we disagreed with Wolfe's description of Gus Grissom, thinking it was extremely unfair. Had Grissom really screwed up like Scott Carpenter during Awara 7, or like Gordo Cooper after Gemini 5, or the en entire Apollo 7 crew, including Mercury and Gemini vet Wally Shira? Shira? Good question. Yeah. 
Grissom would never had flown again. NASA presented the Disney Boy Scout image to the public, but like any other organization where lives matter, as in all lives, not just one race or sexuality or ethnicity, but all lives, NASA was downright grim when it came to mistakes or open rebellion as on Apollo 7. Grissom would have never been assigned to fly the first Gemini or Apollo had he screwed the pooch. Tom Wolfe, for all his gandum apices, gaudium apices, apices? Stop using big words. You know I can't read well, David. <laughs> Man, you picked a hard one, too. Like, I know. These words weren't in mine. He puts in parentheses, too, joy of writing. And research should have picked up on that with NASA and aviation in general. It is thought that Shkira lost his fervor for the moon after Gr- Grissom's death. They were best friends. So I've read having gone through the Mercury selection process and experiencing the Korean War as fighter pilots. Shkira, a Navy guy, shot down a MiG-15, while an exchange pilot with the Air Force flying a straight-wing, underpowered, not-very-maneuverable F-84 that was more a bomber than a fighter. Mm -hmm. Likewise, John Glenn shot down four MiGs, or MIGs, also on exchange with the Air Force in an F-86 with MiG Mad Marine painted (laughs) in red letters on the nose. Howard and I had many such discussions on the drop zone about this stuff. When flying us to altitude, Howard barely touched the controls. He was able to trim the 182 so well that all he had to do was barely move the yoke left to right to continue to fly a loose, big spiral up at a constant rate and attitude. On jump run, he rarely needed any more than one correction of five degrees left or right. One weekend, when Howard had a real paying job a new guy pulled the power back so far that when we exited the 182 was in formation with us i'm telling you that prop looks awfully big when it seems like it's trying to be number five on our (laughs) four-way howard never did that On Sunday, the 30th of March, 1986, Steve and Howard climbed in to the 28B, November 5443 Echo, Buno... 140007? Yeah, we'll go with that. U.S. Navy. I think that was probably the U.S. Navy tail number. Yes. Howard was now a new hire with UPS Flying Freighters. He had finally made it as a real professional commercial pilot. According to the NTSB report, they took off and turned north, climbing to five to 700 feet in altitude. While on the heading, a left aileron roll was attempted with the airplane dishing out on an easterly heading with power increased according to those that could hear it. The T-28 disappeared below the tree line and struck trees and a light slash power pole and came apart. I heard they were inverted, but I don't know for sure. The NTSB report ended with attempt at aerobatics, PIC, piloting command, inadequate altitude, piloting command, overconfidence and abilities, piloting command. Steve and Howard were the 18th and 19th persons involved in skydiving that perished in plane crashes during that fall of 85 through the spring of 86 that 
I and others knew, liked, loved, and would miss and remember. At Howard's funeral, it was only natural that we who knew, flew, and jumped with Howard honored him with a missing man formation and a prayer. Our pilot... I'm going to cry. David, dang it. (laughs) Our pilot who are in heaven, Howard be thy name. Now that you are up there, please make sure we make it back to earth safely. I'm going to cry, guys. (laughs) (laughs) Sometimes you just have to laugh about those things. Respect, Howard and Steve. Respect. God damn it. That's a good one. A tough one, but a good one. Okay. Sorry for the loss. And that was, yeah, rough. That's too bad. Yeah. Sorry for your loss, dude. But they were doing what they loved, and that's pretty incredible. I mean, they yeah. they lived quite the lives. That's pretty crazy stuff. Like, I, I, they have way more cojones than I do. I'll put it that way. Yeah, no kidding. <laughs> so this next story is from our friend and patron, Lissa, who I went to college with. She is going to be on an episode next month. Yes. So you, you guys will hear from her more in a bit. The title of hers is First Aviation Experience. I'm afraid of flying. This isn't a mild anxiety, but rather a, I wish I could just be unconscious for the whole thing, but I don't want to be asleep when I die, so I'll just clench my whole body so tightly for the three hours that my arms go completely numb by the time we land kind of fear. I think you need to fly with us more. Yeah, gosh. (laughs) It's not that bad. I didn't feel this way until more recent years, and that's really because it isn't flying itself that terrifies me, nor is it the thought of being launched 30,000 feet into the air inside of a metal tube. It's the hands behind the machines, hands which can be swayed to inadvisable actions by greed or sloth that have fed this paranoia-induced phobia of mine. But I digress, because the point of all of this rambling is that I wasn't always afraid of flying. I was introduced to aviation early in life. I don't remember what year exactly it was, but I would say I was probably about eight. So we'll call it circa 2000. She's older than us. I didn't know that. Yeah, a little bit. Also, side note, we don't mention it in the episode that she's in, but she was recording with us the day of her birthday and didn't tell us until the post episode. Yeah. Actually, after the post episode. So so happy birthday, Lissa. (laughs) Happy, yeah, happy late birthday, huh? My grandparents on my father's side lived halfway across the country in Washington. The one with the rain, not the one with the big white house whose occupants are regularly evicted. (laughs) (laughs) Good way of putting it. Until this point, my dad would pack us all, my brother, sister, and I, into the back of his turquoise sedan and would spend two or three uncomfortable days in the car on our way up to the big Dolly family reunion in order to visit our grandparents for about a week. The trip itself was extensive and tiresome, and it meant our dad needed to take a good deal of time off work to make it happen, hoarding those precious PDOs so he could blow them all on a single trip. So it was decided one year that we would fly. It would take three hours instead of three days, so we would get to spend more time with the grandparents. I should probably specify that this wasn't we, as in our dad and his three munchkins, but rather we, the munchkins alone. That's right. Oh, great. We were going up in a plane without any parents or guardians going with us. And it's I your did that. first plane ride. I did that basically as soon as my parents were like, like as soon as I was basically old enough. And the first time I did it, I went international too. And they were like, it was like as soon as I was old enough to travel alone international, my dad was like, go. Bye. <laughs> Booked you a ticket. Have fun. And yeah. they, I have to, I had to do the, um, the unaccompanied minor thing, which is actually way more of a pain than you'd think. But anyways, I digress. You are not the normal. 
No. No. Most people don't have as much experience as you did. Yeah. I did that quite a few times. Yeah. DIA is really kind of an experience all by itself, and I got to see it for the first time while looking through the awe-tinted goggles of childhood. Yes. When that place is a, just a, like a Disneyland for me. <laughs> it really is. It's amazing. Well, it was probably a little bit different at this point because this was before... Yeah, this is when they still had the fountain in the middle yeah. of the terminal and all that stuff. When you're young and small, the world seems vast and unknowable and so much bigger. The first time I walked onto that marbled floor beneath the towering canopy, I had the brief thought that the spires must have reached high enough to touch the clouds, or at least the occasional lazy low drifter. I remembered sitting with my siblings at the very front of the tram on the way to the terminals, pressed right up to the windshield because it felt like we were the ones soaring through that tunnel. Along the way, there was an army of these little fans lining the walls of the tunnel that kicked into a rapid spin as we flew by, and I still watch for them whenever I'm there. Over 14,000. You know why? 14ers. From the tram, we soon arrived at the terminal, which is really the concourse, but, you know, whatever, and rode the escalators up to find that the walls were made entirely of windows, which allowed us to watch planes touch down and take off. I remember pressing my nose up to that cool glass to watch these metal birds, lost in complete awe over how something so big and heavy could possibly fly. It seemed like magic, but a burgeoning engineer, I told myself that one day I would figure out, and that magic would be unknowable no more. Soon it was time to go, and we, the three munchkins, said our goodbyes to our dad, and then we were led across the ramp and onto the plane by a smiling stewardess. I don't remember feeling afraid, even as the plane pitched upward and we began our ascent. Maybe it was because, while we didn't have our dad with us, we had each other, and so there was no reason to be afraid. It helped me, personally, that I had long suffered the unfortunate side effects of a deplorable condition, a blight which has followed me through life. Motion sickness. Oh, oh no. no. Now, a plane is not the best place for someone afflicted by this internal monster, and takeoff and landing are always the absolute worst for me, even now. But there was a boon to my queasy, roiling stomach on that day of my first flight. I got the window seat. Aha. Mm. Uh-huh. I still love the view, and I've learned a tremendous amount since that day. I know that while the mechanical systems lurking just beneath the surface of the aircraft themselves are quite complex, the magic which lets these big metal birds fly isn't so complicated. It even has a simple name to boot. Lift. I yeah. also, unfortunately, know that these metal birds aren't always cared for as they deserve. I know that mistakes happen, and sometimes they go unnoticed or are allowed to slip by. I also know that there are policies and safeguards to oppose this, but fear is seldom a rational creature. I love flying, but I'm also terrified of it, even though that wasn't always the case. But I haven't given up hope, so thank you for putting in so much of your time and effort into making this podcast happen, because it'll surely be the reason I'll one day be able to say, I used to be afraid to fly. Travel with us. I always say that... When Nick starts freaking out, then you can start freaking out. <laughs> if Nick freaks out, then you freak out. I hope I have no reason to ever freak out in my I've life. I've never seen you freak out. No, there's no reason. And normally, especially if you're flying in the United States, it's really safe here. Yeah, and I've traveled plenty of times abroad with other airlines and stuff. And generally, it's actually, it's just fine. I mean, they really, a lot of those pilots just have so much experience you'd be surprised yeah. and they're so good at what they do well and even some of the things that we've done like if we hit a patch of really rough turbulence i'm like death gripping the seat and nick's just looking out the window like without a care in the world I'm like okay we'll be fine yeah we'll be fine <laughs> like i said if nick freaks out you freak out but there was one time we had really really bad turbulence coming back from seattle last year and we've talked about it before, but it was the worst turbulence I've ever experienced in my life. Yeah. Guess it what? It was horrible. 
So Nick's stepsister Angelica flew in today, taking that same path and hit the same turbulence. Yeah, basically, yeah. <laughs> She's like, yeah, we were about over Wyoming. I'm like, yep, that sounds correct. <laughs> and then my phone came up and hit me in the face. <laughs> That's how she put it. Yeah. Like, yeah. It's pretty heavy turbulence, but I mean, I've been in much worse. I mean, once you start flying in small planes, too, it's like, once you fly in the airlines, any amount of turbulence in an airliner is like not bad. You're flying in small airplanes, it's like you, you're like pressed against the ceiling every couple minutes, and then you're pressed against the floor every couple of minutes. And craziest turbulence I ever had was in a PC-12 into Alliance. Nebraska. On boutique air. On boutique air. And we were flying in, and this was Brendan and I, and I just remember, because I didn't have a window next to me. I sat in, there's no middle or aisle seats. There's just the ends, the edges, the window seats. But mine didn't have a window, and his did. But I was looking out, I could see out the front window, and I could see out all the side windows. And all I remember is, like, watching the ground come into view out the front, go away, into view. The whole time, we're on this approach, making this turn in, and I mean, Brendan and I are, like, holding on to everything. Like, (laughs) wow, this is crazy. We were like, how in the world are they going to make this landing? I am not even kidding when I say, smoothest landing in my entire life. Unlike freaking good job. The landing we had in uh, St. Louis, which Emily yeah. didn't bring up at all. Yeah, I'm surprised. I guess she doesn't. Well, she hasn't traveled enough with us or to know at that all that was slamming on the ground. To know how hard that it landing actually was. Hard. Yeah. I no. remember it was. We were in the air. We were in the air. We weren't in the air. And I looked at them and I went, "Ow." <laughs> yeah, that wasn't the hardest landing I've ever had either. The hardest landing I've ever had was in the 767 coming back from Europe. We landed in Dulles in DC. And, I mean, it was like, we bounced the first time and came back down. But that bounce, boom, bags came falling out of the, oh <laughs> the overhead bins. And all I remember is after we pulled off the runway, the captain just came on and said, ah, this is the captain speaking, uh, oops. <laughs> uh, oops. Sorry it about was, that. It was a heavy landing. But it's fine. That was okay. Okay. We were okay. And now for the longest one of all. And of course I have to read it. Good luck. So I'm going to <laughs> politely remind everybody that I have a learning disability and I'm sorry in she advance. She has dysgraphia for those of you who are just joining us. Yeah. So sorry in advance. Okay. This is also from David and it's called the Civil Air Patrol, which makes me think of Paw Patrol, but I realized they're okay. not the same thing. The Civil Air Patrol <laughs> is actually all across the country. We have a big group of them over here at the airport I work at actually. They do a lot of things, but they're usually young volunteers who aim for Air Force and such. Hmm. And some retired Air Force. Which makes sense, because the first thing he says is, I was 15 back in the mid-70s when I joined the Civil Air Patrol. Yeah. See, look at that. There you go. Officially known as the U.S. Air Force Auxiliary. Yep. The kid who recruited me had a great sales pitch. Airplane rides. Woo! (laughs) That's all you gotta say. (laughs) Yeah. I love airplanes, and I wanted to someday at least be a member of an air crew, if not a pilot. So I joined. The cadet part of the CAP was, at times, like the Foreign Legion, other times like Animal House. (laughs) We trained to go into the woods, swamps, and mountains to search for missing aircraft. We had teams that consisted of a team leader, assistant team leader, a navigator, an engineer, a communications guy, and a medic. The radio that I, the commo guy, or communications guy, lugged around was the PRC-77, used exclusively in Vietnam, and we jauntily called it the Prick-77. 
Yeah, I mean PRC. Yeah, okay. Yeah. The 77 was carried on a backpack frame and weighed 14 pounds, which somehow felt more like 77 pounds. Since we cross-trained, I was also a medic, complete with advanced first aid and emergency care training. We cadets took this stuff pretty seriously, but adult senior members, some of them I'm not so sure about... (laughs) You might say CAP stood for Clueless Adult Participants. <laughs> oh boy. Some shade. Throw that T, David. One of our senior members claimed to have been a navigator in AC-130 gunships during Vietnam. He had Air Force navigator wings on his uniform, a green nylon flight jacket covered with gunship patches, and somehow got us butt lost while out in the woods one day in a field <laughs> training exercise. Awesome. Seems a little suspicious. Yeah. He had no idea how to orient a topo? Yep, topo map. Map? Topography. Ah. Yeah, so it gives his... you the geography of the land, like it shows you heights, yeah. elevations. With his cheap imitation GI lensatic compass. A cadet na- navigator appropriated the map, whipped out his Silva Ranger orienteering compass which was what most of us used and quickly figured out that the navigator had somehow used the reciprocal bearing to get us lost awesome wrong way the child got us out great (laughs) the adults got you lost the child found you it's like me and my dad when we used to go hiking it's about the same thing we always used to make fun of him he's like i get lost but it's fine we always (laughs) figure it out like but it's fine i'm usually the one that knows where we're going I got lost once, though. Yeah, and you almost got eaten by a wolf. No, nah, it wasn't a wolf. It was probably a coyote, but yeah. Still it was pretty horrifying anyway. coyote is still horrifying. I don't think they would eat me, but it was still a pretty horrifying experience when I was, like, not old. <laughs> <laughs> Another senior member claimed to have been with the 5th Special Forces Group, a Green Beret, during Vietnam. He had the Green Beret with the correct unit flash, his officer rank as a captain on the flash, and those way cool tiger jungle fatigues as seen in the John Wayne movie, The Green Berets. (laughs) Nice. In that movie, there was a scene in which John Wayne is about to repel from a balcony, and he is filmed tying in with a fatal hookup. With a fatal hookup, the ropes are in the snap link in the opposite way they should be, and if John Wayne really tried to repel like that, his snap link would become inverted. And if that becomes inverted, then the gate opens and the rope could fall out of the snap link and John Wayne free falls to the ground. Our alleged Green Belay senior member did just that, falling about 30 feet and landing on his back. Ooh. Ow. Every molecule of air escaped his body via his nose, mouth, and butt. (laughs) (laughs) Great. That's what happens, by the way. If you ever get the air knocked out of you, it's because your lungs got compressed. Yeah. Because you you hit your back or your stomach really hard. Yeah. This kind of happened to my dad once, by the way. Ask him. He fell 30 feet while he was rock climbing once. Ew. Sounds like no fun to me. Yeah. Sounding like a whale exhaling via its blowhole while landing on a duck. Good description. (laughs) Okay. Vivid. He spent the rest of the field training exercise pretending not to be hurt, lurching around white as a sheet with a 
rictus grin on his face and speaking in incoherent grunts. He had to wear a corset-like back brace for a better part of a year after that. Yeah, you can break your back. Yeah, really bad. I'm surprised he even got up. He shouldn't have gotten up. No, he shouldn't have. Because you can get paralyzed. Yeah. My last year as a cadet, I was selected to go to the Air Training Command familiarization course held at Columbus AFB in Mississippi. Air Air Force Force Base. Base. A senior member with Captain's Bars was acting as a chaperone. None of us in attendance knew who this person was. There was no state wing patch on his uniform, but we did notice his silver Air Force pilot wings and asked him what he flew. He cryptically answered, F-4s, Vietnam. Wow, we replied. How cool. Which F-4? Now, somewhat confused, he blurted, The Phantom! We knew that. We said, but what model? C? D? For fun, I threw in one the Navy used, saying, J? J, he said. J, I asked. J, he practically yells. I flew the F-4J. For the Air Force? What is wrong? Why are you... Yes, I flew F-4Js in the Air Force. Good way to to see if someone's lying or not. Mm -hmm. I see what you did there. How could this be? There was obviously something wrong with this. Imposter person. Everyone knows the F-4J was specific to the Navy. Though all Phantoms mostly look alike, there are differences between a navalized F-4 and a strictly land-based Air Force F-4. It was hard to get a gaff like that past us airplane nerdy types. Yeah, it is. It's what I said about the, the like the movie thing, right? Like, mm-hmm. you know when it's wrong. Yes. It's wrong. We took our concerns to another senior member. The next day, the Air Force pilot wings were missing from the man's 1550 shade blue uniform shirt. He glared at us, but otherwise didn't come near us, though several of us could have taught him about aircraft affiliation. (laughs) Yeah, that was a pretty sizable mistake. Yeah, if you're going to do that and say you flew something, make sure you have an actual answer. You flew an airplane with a tail hook in the Air Force? Are you landing Why? On carriers all of a sudden <laughs> in the Air Force? Because that's the Navy's job. Bum, bum, bum. Yeah. The CAP, at least back in the 70s, often teamed up with the Civil Defense and had what we called C-DEXs, or Civil Defense Exercises. More often than not, it was a simulated airplane crash where an ELT would be planted in the middle of nowhere broadcasting at 121.5 megahertz. Which is the um, 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 emergency locator transmitter. Yes, ELT yes. is emergency locator transmitter. All airplanes have them. You crash somewhere, it starts going off. Unless it gets broken, then it doesn't go off. Yes, but they're usually meant to survive whatever the airplane can go through. Usually. <coughs> <laughs> the squadrons that had ground teams would assemble at an airport that was nearby to use as a locus for the ensuing search. The composite and senior member only squadrons with CAP aircraft that had ELT receivers would work in coordination with the cadet ground teams that also had an ELT receivers. Then they'd try to triangulate where the ELT was. Which, by the way, kind of cool. Like figuring out how to find ELTs. Yeah. We had one such CDEX in Dublin, Georgia. I didn't even know there was a Dublin, Georgia. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there is. There's also a Cairo, Georgia. That's yes. pronounced Cairo. Yes. We, we won't get into that again. <laughs> that doesn't make sense. 
A Maybe small... it's not pronounced Dublin. Maybe it's something dumb like Dublin. <laughs> Dublin. Dublin. Oh no. There's no E at the end. They don't care. I know. <laughs> A small town towards the Florida border down I-75. My squadron set up a hoochville by connecting about 20 ponchos together into a huge tent that sat about chest high. It was a marvel. Despite the heat, it stayed pretty nice and cool underneath. It was there we plotted our night exercise. Navigate to the beer store where the airport turnoff was. (laughs) Solid. (laughs) Doug, who had just left the cadet program to become a senior member, would be the guy to go inside and purchase the forbidden drink, as he was the only one old enough. Which, back then, might have been 18. I don't know. I don't remember. 70s Depends on the 18. place and time. That's true, because there were some parts of the United States where 18 was the legal drinking limit, and 21 was the legal drinking limit in other states. It's yeah, very this, weird. It was yeah. a weird time. A lot of things change over time. <laughs> When it finally got dark, we headed off down the road, maybe three miles, to the beer store. Along the way, if a vehicle approached, we'd hide in the thick kudzu vines that grew along the sides of the road. You gotta be careful for gators, though, because gators hide in those. I know, because the one time I went to Georgia, we saw them on the side of the road, and there was a gator. Oh, nice. (laughs) I was like, was that a real alligator? And our bus driver was like, yep. (laughs) Probably. Great. We made the objective, and Doug made the purchase, getting me Mountain Dew, as I had recently been diagnosed with celiac disease, so you couldn't have beer. That's tragic. That is tragic. That is a damn tragedy. And could not have beer. Yeah, if you don't know what celiac disease, it means they can't have gluten. It, like, attacks their stomach. Which there is wheat in beer. Yes, it's bad. And pizza. I'm sorry, bro. That sucks. I'm sorry. I was amazed at how just half of a can of PBR got most of them tipsy. PBR is... Pabst it, Blue Ribbon. Pabst Blue Ribbon, thank you. Ah. It's like the cheapest thing you can get. It, uh, it's it's one, like it, a bush. It's, it's one of those cheaper. things I refuse to drink. Ah. It's ultra super mega cheap. For those of you who haven't heard my spiel, I am a true Coloradoan and I will only drink craft beer. From Usually from Colorado, but not exclusively. I'm a Colo- not exclusively. I'm a Coloradan and I don't drink. Beer. I, I don't like beer very much either. <laughs> but, I'm not a beer drink. person. But there's there's other good places with craft beer. One of them is Oregon. Yes. So visiting Nick's family is not a hardship for me. That's fair. <laughs> then we decided to start back. So you were drinking and then you decided to go back? Mm. Oh boy. <laughs> Probably not the best back. idea. As some of hiked... I'm, I'm assuming as some of us. Yes, as some of us hiked and others of us stumbled back up the road, we noticed a pair of headlights coming slowly towards us. A spotlight was being shined from the vehicle to the right and left ahead of it towards us. We immediately went off the road into the kudzu covering what we thought was a shallow ditch. It turned out to be a cement drainage about 8 to 10 feet straight down. Whew. There were half a dozen (laughs) exclamations, Exclamations, thank you, of what the, and oh shit, followed by explosions of air forced out of lungs by rapid deceleration trauma. Great. More people falling. Yeah. On their backs, probably. Yep. We lay in a pile, moaning and groaning, as what turned out to be a CAP three-fourths of a ton truck slowly eased by. Yeah. 
the bright spotlight moving back and forth above us. We painfully crawled up the embankment to take a peek, and once far enough down the road, we resumed, now with a bit of limping thrown in. Great. So, not only are you slightly drunk, but now you have to limp. (laughs) Yeah, great. Oh, it's going to take you forever. Maybe ten minutes later, we saw the headlights coming from behind us a little faster now, with some creepy fingers of light from the spot. We tested the depth of the ditch before committing to using it as a hiding spot. <laughs> Good plan. And had a strategy session. We assumed we were the target of the searching vehicle and that the road was not the place to be. So out came a topo map, a silver ranger compass, and we shot an azimuth through the woods back to the airport and back way into Hoochville. Using our patrolling techniques used to locate the incapacitated, we quietly moved through the sand and scrub oak terrain, and half an hour later, quietly slipped back into Hoochville. Minutes later, James Zithead McKnight. That's not very nice. <laughs> I had acne growing up. It's not very nice. I still have acne. Yeah, I do too. Not as bad, but I'm just saying, don't make fun of people who have acne. Sometimes they can't help it. Anyway. Not the most popular or reliable team member, who we purposefully left behind, stuck his big fat head in and said, You're in trouble. They know what you did and want all of you in the trailer. I'm telling them I found you. Someone threw a rock at him but missed as he scurried off the double wide that served as an office for the FBO and the headquarters for CDEX. We quickly strategized again with Doug, saying, Let me do the talking. You guys just keep quiet. Minutes later, Major Arnold, our squadron's commanding officer, and the mother of two of the Tyrants? Truants. Truants. Jeff and Richard asked us to follow her to the trailer. We all exchanged glances with one another. How did they find out? Being said, unsaid. We gathered inside, and a Dublin Squadron senior member led off with, You cadets got some explaining to do. It was like being threatened by Barney Fife. Doug just stared at him, which lasted an uncomfortable few minutes before Barney Fife said, Well, and Doug said, Well, what? Why'd you do it? Do what? You know what? I don't know how y'all do things up in Atlanta, but down here, we do things a bit different. Huh? You all threw them dirt clods at them Sandy Sprig girls. Now admit it. The look on Doug's face. Half of us sagged in relief while the other half tried not to laugh. Sandy Springs was an Atlanta area squadron who shaped their ranger eyes in the backs of their patrol cars like SS lightning bolts. Uh... Yeah, kind of weird. Their commanding officer, Major Ron Bradford, was there too, watching us but not saying anything. Bradford had been a ranger in Vietnam and had PTSD out the wazoo. He worked for DARPA DARPA, DARPA out of Georgia Tech and was well respected by everyone in the Georgia wing. Doug told the assembled group that we had been doing a night navigation exercise and did not throw dirt clods at the girls from the SS squadron. We then had the Barry twins with us who were in the SS squadron. We called them the Barry Barry disease. Great. (laughs) Yeah, it's a little weird. They said simultaneously that we weren't responsible, which was kind of creepy the way (laughs) 
they said it the same thing at the same time. That's not that weird. Christy and I do it all the time. Stop it. <laughs> I say that every Sometimes time. Sometimes I do it with you. Sometimes all three of yeah, us do fair. it. that's fair. So, to be fair. But most of the time, it's just you two. Yeah. Bradford took a long look at us and said, they didn't do it. Let me handle it. You guys go on and get some sleep. Arduous day tomorrow. With that, we left mumbling thanks to Major Bradford. He gave Doug a wink in return. Turned out it was two guys from the SS Quadrant who blamed us as we weren't there when they got questioned about it. The next day, we eventually found the ELT in an abandoned A-26 Invader Light bomber from World War II, sitting for some reason in the middle of the woods on its landing gear. Even the R-2800 engines were still mounted. Pine and oak trees were growing all around it. It was bare metal, and I wanted to try to find the N number... But objective reached, we pulled out and rode in various vehicles back to the Dublin, Dublin, whatever, airfield to break everything down and go home. Our Georgia wing commander was an affable guy, well into middle age, who sat at a desk for his real job. One of the perks our wing had was the use of an army ranger training facility near... What? Holy crap. Dallanaga? <laughs> Dallanaga? Dallanaga. <laughs> Georgia. In the North Georgia Mountains, that had a repelling tower with UH-1 skids and a sheer rock face. The wing commander tried to repel down the rock face and didn't do well. He ended up slamming his butt against the rock while upside down and had to be belayed down. Whereupon, he determined that since he couldn't handle it, then neither could we. He outlawed repelling. We cadets and adults who had been repelling for a few years now were flabbergasted. What? First, I'm told there would be airplane rides, and in three years, I haven't had one. And now this? Strap a canteen on his ass, and he thinks he's... Patton. Patton. Gosh, my, my brain didn't want to say it. <sighs> I yelled at whoever was in earshot, which was pretty much everybody. Sadly, it was all true. The wing pilots managed to schedule flying days when the weather was too bad to fly. I'm pretty sure they did it on purpose, using long-range forecasts. And by eliminating repelling, the wing commander essentially shut down the cadet ground teams from being called to search for any missing aircraft. One of my fellow cadets said it best. Adults, they screw everything up. You're not wrong. Yeah, that's Sometimes. why I'm not one. Yeah. <laughs> Who needs to be an adult, right? <laughs> Lame. Lame. <laughs> be that as it may, some of the cadets I knew did go on to become effective adults themselves. Several got appointments to the service academies and became pilots or air crew. One even became a space shuttle pilot. Cool. Wow. Another guy worked for an unnamed organization doing things that he didn't do. <laughs> Okay, or, or at least that's what he didn't say. Yeah, that's kind of... <laughs> it's like the, shh, I can't tell you anything. That's kind of, yeah. That's, I say those kinds of things sometimes. I'm like, yeah, that thing I don't do. <laughs> at that place I don't go to. Yeah. <laughs> Every day that I don't have. <laughs> <laughs> One flies Apaches for the army. Others enlisted with varying degrees of success. For some, the luster and romance of the military wore off when enlistment age arrived and they went on to other things. And for a very few of us, myself included, health problems kept us from filling that much dreamed about seat in a military aircraft. 
All in all, however, the CAP was a way to at least do something meaningful despite the best or worst efforts of the adults. Nice. Good for you. I know some people that went into Civil Air Patrol, but not very many. It's probably not even as complicated or fun as it was even then. Yeah. But, I mean, they do go fly. We have a bunch of Cessna 172s and 182s out where I work that they go fly occasionally. But, yeah, that's that's pretty neat. I mean, good story. Good stories. Yeah. Thanks so much, thanks. everybody. Yeah, thanks, For David submitting a story. Mostly David, but... Lisa and Emily, too. Yeah. yeah. My first aviation experience was the New York trip, which we've talked about at length, so I won't go too far into that. But my first general aviation experience, like actually in a plane, was in Nick's dad's Piper 140. Yeah, Cherokee 140, yeah. Or, yeah, Cherokee 140. At In Denver, Yeah. mind you. Which uh, does not climb quickly. N- no. At altitude, no. Its name's Putt-Putt. We called it Putt-Putt. Because it was Though just now it's so in, slow. Now it's at a flight school in Michigan, so it's probably less putt-putt-esque. Yeah, it probably does better there. And I, it was really cool. I had brought my cross-stitch in case like I got nervous for whatever reason, which I didn't. Except when Al decided to do some steeper turns than I was really acquainted with. It's one of those things, like, I guess you'd ha- if you're not familiar with the way that general aviation airplanes can handle... Because you get so used to, like, Airliners. commercial aviation yeah. where... They're big lumbering machines where, yes, they go wicked fast, but their turns are slow and yeah. shallow and they feel like nothing. And then you get into a small airplane where it's capable of pulling G's that you just aren't used to in your human body. There, I mean, more G's than a roller coaster. And yeah. it's very normal for the airplane and it's very doable. That's, you know, it's a whole different experience. But we flew south of Centennial and then went west, which was the first time I ever got to see Red Rocks. I've didn't actually get to go to Red Rocks for s- several years afterward, but I got to see it from overhead. Yeah. I like the view from above it, actually. It's really nice. I've never seen it from up above. I've ever actually never been in a general aviation aircraft. You'll get to do that soon with Brendan. Yeah, when Brendan get his, gets his license. Which, yes. as of this recording, he has done his long cross-country. He's yeah. basically done with all of his requirements, and he has his check ride scheduled for the 19th of February. I'm sure he'll pass. He's He's good. He's, He's a good pilot. Really? He, that far out? Flying. A month from today? Yeah, it probably depended on schedule. It took him like two weeks just to get in touch with a... Oh, Jesus. A uh, DBE. And so when he finally did... Makes sense. It's whenever they had time, I'm sure. Got yeah. it. I, my first experience, I was 12 years old, and we were going to Disneyland uh, with my Girl Scout troop, and we flew on United, and we... Did a hop between Denver to Texas on a small plane. It was probably a CRJ or an ERJ or something. Something along those lines. And then we went from Texas to California, which was probably on a 37, something like that. Probably. Pretty. It, it was a bigger plane than the plane I flew into to Texas, but it wasn't like a, a wide body. I didn't fly on a wide body till we went to Chicago this year. Yeah. But I remember being nervous, but not super nervous because I didn't really know what to expect. And a friend of mine was sitting next to me and she did have experience on airplanes. Yeah, yeah. Because her family actually lived in California. Most of her family Uh, did. So she probably traveled a lot. So she traveled to California a lot. And so she kind of prepped me for the go and everything. The one thing I do remember from that trip is on the way back, we weren't sitting together because of the way they Mm -hmm. booked our seats. Mm -hmm. 
And so the person who was getting on our flight, um, I was like toward the front of the economy seats Mm -hmm. and she sat next to me because the seat was open for the majority of boarding. Nice. Well, someone got on and that was their seat. Of course. And she didn't like, my friend didn't get up and (laughs) we were, uh, to be fair, we were 12 years old. Like we were really young. She was 11. I was 12. Mm -hmm. So we were just sitting there and it turns out that her seat was Mm -hmm. actually good because the person who was sitting there, their other party was in the back of the plane where my, my friend was sitting. So they just switched seats, but the lady was like, next time you need to like tell us that you're going to switch seats. Right. So I remember, I remember the lady being very upset. (laughs) (laughs) That's what I remember from that experience. I don't remember being scared. I remember being nervous because I didn't fly again. We went to Savannah a few years later, and then we went on the New York trip. And then after the New York trip, I didn't go again until 2017. Yeah, when you flew with us. Yeah, to Seattle. Seattle. So yeah, I remember being nervous before we started this podcast, and then. After I flew with you guys for a while, I was like, it's fine. If Nick doesn't freak out, I'm not freaking oh, no. out. <laughs> no, no. Well, you know, I think you understand enough about aviation that now it's like, well, now it's, it's like- almost a comfortable thing to do. Like, for me, flying is like total comfort zone. I don't know. I, I'm just so happy as a clam when I'm flying. And that's probably because I don't even remember my first flying experience, aviation experience, because I was zero years old. Yeah. <laughs> As a matter of fact, my dad always makes it a point too that even before then, which I yes, I flew when I was like zero, but even before then I went on a trip. Because he always makes a point of the fact that I had been to the Eiffel the top of the Eiffel Tower, but I wasn't there. Because my <laughs> mom was pregnant. <laughs> and she went they went up to the top of the Eiffel Tower and that's the only time I've ever actually been to the very top of the Eiffel yeah. Tower. My my parents both shot pool in the American Pool Players Association, which has their big, I think it's the championships in Vegas every year. So I went once, and that was my first flight. No memory of it. The only thing I remember is a glass elevator. Cool. That entire trip, that's all I remember. Jay was still in the womb when he went, so he's, quote unquote, been to Vegas. Yeah, sure. And then I don't think Leo ever went. Mm, probably not. But my mom also said that being pregnant was when she played pool her best. Because one of the mistakes that Miranda and I always make when playing pool is after you make your shot, we stand up. And mom's like, when I was pregnant, there was no standing up after yeah. a shot. <laughs> yeah, that's fair. For me, I don't know. I mean, there's any number of first experiences I could talk about. Not the first time I was on an airplane because I don't remember. I have plenty of times I've been on airplanes and... I mean, probably in the thousands now, but, and been around airplanes. But I think, I think the, one of the coolest first experiences I had was the first time I got to go fly the real Sims, the motion Sims at an unnamed airline. We'll leave it at that. Coolest experience probably of my life. Honestly, if I could work in that facility, I think it would be my absolute dream place to work. But I have a coworker whose husband works at the. Yeah, and I've known a lot of people that actually that work there. Anyone over time. Anyone who's in commercial aviation probably knows what airline we're talking about. Maybe. Because it's a huge facility in Denver. Now it's the world's largest training facility for any airline on earth. There you go. Pilot training facility, I should say, which is pretty cool. But I got to fly the seven fifty seven, the A three twenty, and the triple seven that night. 
and uh, we were there for from like 9 p.m. till 3 a.m. wandering around with these people getting a tour, and it was on one of my birthdays. I was young, pretty young, but I already knew a lot about aviation, and this was like ultimate. I got to go, they had like all the flight attendant training facilities too, so I got to slide down a, an, an emergency slide, um, a real one, and I got to go in their like training cabin that tilts and it fills with smoke and like shakes and makes loud noises and that was pretty cool. And the one thing I remember is I really fell in love with flying the 757 at that time. Like having flown the other two, the A320 and the 777, which were both very automated airplanes, the 757 was a flyer's airplane and it just flew so nice. It was just so much fun to fly. And the 777 is really cool. And I got to fly that one another time too. But I remember that first time the person who was there and putting me to the test, quote unquote, and was setting up the scenarios and such for me to fly, he at one point set me up on a scenario where I was to try to touch the touch an aircraft carrier with the landing gear with this 777. And so he set me up on this approach, told me what turn to make, and I did all these turns and flew directly toward this 777 and managed to crash it against the deck of the... Slick. The, the aircraft carrier. But he said, he's like... You know, I think you're probably the youngest person we've ever had actually make it to the aircraft carrier. And he said, you know, we've almost everybody crashes long before they ever get there or just doesn't make it. And he said, you know, it, it only took me one try. Like, I made it to the deck. So it's one of those things, like, piloting kind of comes natural to me, naturally to me, like the, the feeling of the airplane, but which I've had instructors tell me too. But it's, it's there's still some things, I, of course, obviously a lot to learn, but... That was a really fun experience for me, and that was definitely a first, was like getting to sit in that big cockpit and yeah. feel the motions and do all these things. Even if it wasn't a real airplane, it was pretty freaking close, and it was so cool. And that is a memory I will never, never, ever give away for anything, because that was just so cool. I think my first time in a cockpit is pretty spectacular and hard to top. Uh, that is fair. I know what you're talking about. My first time in a cockpit was in the Spruce Goose. Yeah. Yep. And I sat not in Howard Hughes' seat, but close enough. Yeah. It, yes. It, and that's pretty crazy. I mean, even then, like, to sit in the cockpit of the Spruce Goose is still something most people won't experience in their life. And a lot of aviators might, but most won't. There like, was so much history. You could just feel it. Yep. I it got was to incredible. S- I got to sit in the pilot's seat, in Howard Hughes' seat, wear his hat. That was... I have a picture of that. It's pretty... That's a, another memory I'll never never give away for anything. Yeah. I'm here. Cool. <laughs> Hi. We got a lot more experiences to take you on. Yeah. I. The reason why they have been able to be on the Spruce Goose is Nick's family, uh, part of part of his family, lives in Oregon, and that's yes. where it is. Yes. I do not usually go with them because they always go during times where I have to be at home. Yes. <laughs> like... Holidays. Yes. <laughs> so eventually I'll make my way out to Oregon and, and be able we'll try to, to do go. all that stuff. We'll try to go maybe this year. We'll see. But there's there's also a lot of other things I'd like to do. A lot of museums I'd like to go visit and such. So Also, thank you for those of you who've suggested, quote unquote, our patron Jacob, uh, on uh, <laughs> museums to go to. Yes. Because we, we really like museums. <laughs> yes. If you have a really cool like aviation experience or place to go or something, please let us know. Uh, we want to do those things and just the same we've we've kind of thrown it out there but we would eventually for those of you that are patrons and 
maybe eventually to those that aren't. When we go on day trips, we might like to try to plan these things in advance if we're going to, say, a museum or something. And those of you that are nearby or or whatever can maybe meet up. Just we'll we'll try to plan something. But uh, we'll we'll talk about that more in the future once COVID is kind of not ceased. more out of the picture. Yeah. Thanks to everyone who submitted stories. Not just for this episode, but for all episodes. We really like reading your stories. And next month is the story you tell of when you fell in love with aviation. Of any anything that has to do with aviation. Miranda and I share the story. So. Yes. That's fair. You guys probably already know the story that we have. But. It's fine. If you have a story and you would like to tell it. Please do. Please do. Pretty sure. Pretty sure Alyssa just told hers. So. It's going to be really hard for me to tell a fall in love with aviation story since it's just literally my entire life. I mean, I guess it could also be like. Why do I love aviation? No, but like moments where it reaffirmed your love for aviation. Sure. I could do some of those. Where you're like. This is why I like it. Thanks so much for listening and submitting stories, and we will catch you guys next time. Keep your speed up. Thank you to everyone who submitted their story for this episode. We are your hosts, Nick, Miranda, and Christy. Our theme music was composed by Miranda and performed by all three of us, plus Leo. Our logo is by Naomi from Not a Monster, Not a Boogeyman. To submit your aviation story, go to hardlandingspodcast.com. And check us out on social media. Catch you next time.